Hello beautiful human. I'm Jyoti and you're listening to People's History, the podcast where we talk to people from around the world and learn about them, their personal stories, their history, and perhaps a bit of the history of the world we inhabit. Today we have with us Cliff Chergen from Jerusalem, Israel. Hi Cliff. Hi Jyoti. Hi Jyoti, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, so Cliff, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, so uh, my name's Cliff Churgan. I live here in Jerusalem, Israel, and as you can uh, tell from my accent, I'm from southern Israel. <laughs> Actually, no, <laughs> I'm, uh, I was <laughs> born in the United States, um, and uh, well, I, I technically, I never grew up, but I got older there. Um, I was, and then I ended up moving to Israel. And I'll start a little bit of background myself, my family, how I grew up, uh, which kind of feeds into how I ended up here. And I will add parenthetically that my uh, brother also uh, moved from America to Israel. Um, wow. He's my, so did he he's my, he's my, with you? He, he actually, he's three years younger than me. And uh, uh, he came here three years after I did. So okay. we basically made it, we came here yeah, at the same time, at the same age, but not at the same okay. time. Okay. And I, I generally tell people my annoying little brother followed me all the way to Israel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, you're but telling he, us about... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, start, he started, he now, um, he, he lives on a collective farm. I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit, but... I'm just yeah, mentioning sure. he lives on a collective farm called the Kibbutz, mm-hmm. uh, which um, just I, there are people who are listening who aren't familiar with the idea of Kibbutz. Kibbutz comes from the Hebrew word kvutsa or group, and it is a uh, socialist organization where in its ideal state, uh, you basically everyone works and puts in all of their work, whether they get a salary or they work on the kibbutz itself or whatever, they work the same and they all get the same amount of money. So if you are a kibbutz member and you are the CEO of a bank and make you know $100,000 a month, or if you are a farmer out in the field harvesting dates um, and only earning you know $1,000 a month, uh, at the end of the day, you both get equal shares in whatever the kibbutz uh, profits from. Mm, that's pretty it's interesting a, and egalitarian. <laughs> yes, very. it's very egalitarian. And notice that I said in its ideal form. Okay. Uh, what the idea, ideal of the kibbutz, unfortunately, it worked for a long time. Uh, and it was actually, it was born out of necessity in the 1920s you had uh, Jews who were moving here when this was still Palestine. You had a number of Jews who were moving from Europe. They were uh, to, to the, what was in Palestine and they were desperately poor and they couldn't afford to buy land or anything like that. So um, organizations such as the, um, you know, what became the United Jewish Fund, uh, or the, uh, the Jewish National Fund, excuse me, um, they would go and they would purchase land because, but because this was a community purchase, they didn't transfer it to an individual, they transferred it to a group. And then the group would come and they would work the land together. And there was a lot of idealism involved. 
in, in that. Uh, they also, there was a, back in, this is back in the early days, there was almost like a religion of work. These were people who were not religious in kind of traditional sense of being uh, Jewishly religious. They saw they had a mission. Zionism was their mission to bring the Jews back to the land. And not only to bring the Jews back to the land, but they felt that Jews outside of the Holy Land had become sort of this, you know, entrepreneurial class that didn't really know how to work. And there, and there was something called the inverted pyramid, where Jews were doing that. Were were in the normal society, most people are doing labor, doing manual labor, and then you have kind of this middle class of shopkeepers, etc., and then sort of these wealthy people on top, and that the Jews were sort of inverted, and that the there was hardly anyone doing manual labor. I don't think it was totally true, but it was definitely true that there was that uh, the Jewish community did not really know how to farm because in Europe, uh, you couldn't either, you, either it was illegal to own land, or if you owned land and the czar came the next day and kicked you off, you, could, you were left with nothing. So the Jews in Europe were very, always wanted to have like portable, portable wealth. They weren't wow. buying land and they weren't farming. Wow. That kind of explains something to me about what you started with the kibbutz and the idea. Wow, that was, yeah, that explained so much to me. Right. So that is, that's, I mean, that's sort of the early ideal of Zionism. And I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit later. I'm going to talk about kind of what happened because uh, it's quite, I was thinking about it today when we were talking and preparing. And I thought, you know, my moving to Israel, I moved to Israel during, um, like it's the end of a very critical period. I didn't realize it, but looking back, it was a really critical period in Israel's history. So, so I'll go back a little bit further. Can I ask? Yeah, so which year was it when you moved to Israel? Uh, I moved to Israel in 1982. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're telling us about your brother's movement and Right. Yeah. So we'll go back. So my brother and I were born and uh, raised in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, we were in, it was a very standard kind of Jewish household. I think we were maybe a bit more traditional than most people. Um, we, uh, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing. It's hard for people who aren't Jewish to understand. But mm-hmm. like, for instance, our house was a kosher house. Kosher is a list of kind of dietary requirements of Jews. I think most people know that Jews don't eat pork, for instance. Uh, but some people don't know, don't know that, for instance, even uh, if you eat beef or you eat chicken, the animal has to be slaughtered in a certain way. Um, you're not allowed to eat beef and chicken with dairy products. And in fact, not only are you not allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to use the same dishes. You're not allowed to use, use the same pots and pans. It's a little bit complicated, mm-hmm. uh, but so we kept kosher at home. We, we didn't eat, you know, we, we, we kept the dietary laws at home, but like when we went to restaurants, then we would eat things that weren't kosher. <laughs> a little, <laughs> it, it's, it, when I look back, it's a little strange, but... Um, uh, so you violated what, what, it while knowing you were violating yeah. the rule? Okay. Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. oh yeah. Okay. And it was, you know, and, it, and it's weird, it's funny because, um, you know, there's an old joke among people who are 
uh, more observant, as I'm more observant these days, um, people who are more observant will, uh, you know, say that, oh, that those people, their dishes will go to heaven because they, because their, their dishes are kosher, but they're not oh. kosher. So the dishes will go to heaven. Oh. <laughs> okay. But when I look back at it, I, uh, one of the things that I don't, that I don't like about modern religious life is kind of, and this is specifically in Jewish life, there's a real disdain for people who do not, you know, observe the commandments and things like that. And, and some, and in fact, among many Orthodox Jews, they'll say it's better not to go to a synagogue than to go to a conservative or reform synagogue, something that isn't, you know, that isn't following Jewish law. And I completely disagree with that because mm -hmm. growing up in a household like that, it gave me a sense and identity as a Jew. If I, if my parents didn't do anything, I don't know if I would have had any connection to the religion whatsoever. So I, I, I appreciate what they did and they were, they wanted to keep the tradition. They weren't like firm believers, but they felt it was important to keep the tradition. And uh, so when I went to university, when I went to university, it was very important for me to go to the university where I could eat kosher food for most of the time. The regular meals would be kosher. And then if I went out to a dinner, I would eat something not kosher. I didn't get the latter part. So when you would go for so dinner? It, so when I went out for dinner, I would eat something not kosher, but my okay. main meals were kosher. Okay. And then when I was at university, I had um, sort of a, it's an interesting turning point in my life where, you know, um, there's a, there's a holiday once a year called Yom Kippur, which is the most solemn day of the Jewish year. And it is the year, it's a day when you are, where God forgives you of your sins, but it's your obligation to, first of all, you fast, you, know, you don't eat, you don't eat or drink for 24 hours. Uh, you spend most of the, a lot of the time in synagogue and you're praying and you're supposed to be like kind of evaluating your life and all that sort of stuff. And so the, I was in college my first year away from home and I was, it was Yom Kippur and it was night and I went to synagogue and the synagogue ended at say eight o'clock or something like that. And, um, and I went, went to my dorm room and what, some of my friends knocked on the door and they were like, oh, we're going out to the movies. You want to come with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I went out to the movies with them. Mm -hmm. I didn't eat the popcorn, mm -hmm. but I went to the movies. Mm -hmm. And then afterward, I started trying to, I started sort of reevaluating my relationship with being Jewish. And it sort of set me on a path where I became a more religiously observant Jew. Okay. Wow. So you were trying your best to keep the best of religion with you while also trying to under, be a part of the world around you. Is it right if I say something right. along those lines? I, I, well, I think that I, I don't know if I thought about it that that is certainly what's interesting is that is absolutely my philosophy of today. Okay. But I think, um, I'm not sure if I thought about it that deeply back then, but I, but you know, even then and now I definitely feel that there is a, I mean, I, I don't want to separate myself from the world. And I think it's a negative thing to separate yourself from the world. And you have this balancing act as a Jew 
um, in how, how you're going to be involved in the world, you're still going to be traditionally Jewish. Um, and that was kind of, I think I, I was going off kind of on the deep end and I sort of, you know, corrected myself, maybe overcorrected myself a little bit, but I, I, I corrected myself pretty well. Um, and, uh, and that, but, but it's, it, it's really interesting that you, that you picked up on that because that is definitely one of the great tensions in Judaism um, today. And it's one of the big struggles within Israel. So are there like people in Israel who debated out in the open, in the public spaces, in the public life about this thing, even today in Israel? Um, I don't think it's really debated enough in a, in a religious sense. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I think has happened in Israel um, is that, so one thing that's happened is 1977 i mentioned i came at the end of this like big change what happened in 1977 was the labor party which had been governing in israel since its foundation in 1948 uh lost the election and the new new party the likud came to power likud of what will later be benjamin it was under the leadership of a man named menachem begin he was the prime minister and there were a vast number of changes that took place. Some of them were kind of necessary changes, and some of them were maybe a little bit more problematic. And one of the things that happened, and this is, is that the, the let's call it religious Jews, I have to explain this, religious Jews in Israel are kind of divided into two groups. This is a very rough kind of division but we'll put it that way they're like two groups yeah. one is uh is nationalist religious that is people who um generally are more involved in the world um who are who keep the commandments but are involved in the world and then there are the haridim the the ultra orthodox what we call and they are the ones who you generally see with the long side curls and the black coats and black and, and the hat and black hats or fur hats um they are there other people call them hasidim um they're ultra orthodox the hasidim are a branch of the ultra orthodox but they're made up of a number of different groups and they are again i'm being rather crude in my divisions mm -hmm. here they are uh, more they want to separate from the world they for instance like they don't really see value in um, learning, you know, in mixing with other cultures, let's say. Mm. They would, they, they just wouldn't be interested in meeting people who aren't Jewish. Uh, and they, you know, and they don't see any real worth in kind of worldly knowledge. Again, you know, look, there, there are people in the ultra world who go and they become doctors and things like that. But in a very broad stroke, like for instance, in the schools of the ultra-Orthodox, the kids don't learn English, they don't learn math, because they just don't see a value in it. They only study religious studies. So what happened to a large degree is that the nationalist religious, after the 1967 war, and especially after the 1977 election, they started turning much more toward the nationalist part and became very involved, very concerned with kind of 
uh, defense and security and becoming settlers. The settler movement of people moving into territories that Israel had uh, acquired in, after 19, in 19, the 1967 war. And acquired, you know, the, the, uh, the, the areas taken by Israel uh, in 1967, the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So they became very concerned with settlers. And in some ways, I think they left religious philosophy to the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, Cliff, I didn't get one point. So these people, you said, who moved towards the settler movement, are you saying they were the ultra-Orthodox who moved towards the No, no, movement? they were the nationals religious. Okay. They, so were, they were the national religious, and they, mm -hmm. um, and, and they, it's interesting, I, I tell people, and they're very surprised, when the, um, in the 1967 war, when there was an opportunity to conquer the Jordanians, it was the religious ministers who in many ways were most hesitant about it. The, the, the religious, the national religious, nationalist religious people were before 1967 tended to be more uh, left-wing, more pacifist, less militaristic. And, that, and what's happened slowly over the years, it, that has kind of reversed. And do these ultra-Orthodox people, uh, do they see the national Orthodox as Jews or do they consider them to be not Jewish enough? Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting... I think in general they would say they're not, they're not Jewish enough. Okay. And yeah, so you're telling us how you were in US, you went to university, and then you studied, you moved a bit towards right. religion, and then what happened? And then I, um, then I started becoming, I, you know, it was kind of a spectrum, I started becoming more and more uh, involved in Jewish religion. And then for my third year in university, study in Israel, and I kind of made a decision that if I was gonna like keep on this path of being, you know, a religious Jew, and if Judaism was important to me, then Israel was the place to be. And I and still what feel were you studying? About that. I was studying in international relations mm -hmm. and the Judaic studies, but most mostly international relations. The Judaic studies was kind of a, a side thing, just because I, I really liked the professor who was, who was in charge of the department, so I took a lot of his classes. Um, and uh, and I, would, I had this dream of being a diplomat at, at someday. It was funny, I was talking to my children about it, which um, actually never came about, but <laughs> that was my dream. So your kids, does, do, does any one of them share that dream? Uh, no, my kids have no interest in that. Uh, my daughter is very much into the sciences. She wants to, she's uh, studying pharmacy now and hopefully she'll be graduating in another couple months and start getting out in the world um my the, the, the two boys who are next one of them just got out of the army less than a year ago so he's still kind of looking around but he wants to be a businessman uh, number three is going into the army in another month and who knows what he's going to be I, I i he has he's very good with his hands so he may be uh, you know, I can see him having a construction company or a renovation company or something like that. And number four is in high school and he's uh, studying uh, 
uh, electronics and computers. He's in a technical school. So he's learning, he's going, taking a deep dive into, you know, electronics and programming and all that sort of stuff. Wow. So when you came to Israel and you studied at, should I assume it was Hebrew University where you went? Right. I was at Hebrew University for a year. Yeah. Okay. And then you graduated from there and you became a part of this. No, actually, I went, I went back to my school in Atlanta. I was studying in Atlanta at the time at Emory University. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did my one year here. I went back, graduated from Emory. Then I worked for a year at the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, Georgia, in America. Mm-hmm. And then I came here. Wow. So you did become a diplomat, kind of. You, were, you did work in the yeah. consulate. <laughs> at one year. At one year of diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, one year. But yeah, you lived your dream that bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when so you just came back to Israel and when you came back to Israel like how do I say this uh was it like a it, it wouldn't be a shock because you had already lived a year in Israel but you could easily be categorized how do I say you would have that special sensor in you that could differentiate how United States is different from Israel how the society is different and how it is world apart as in US is a big country with so much flora and fauna Israel might be smaller than Pennsylvania yeah uh, so Israel Israel um, with if you include the West Bank in Gaza Strip is the size of New Jersey oh so uh, so yeah it's it's like it's a very small country I think that look yeah uh, you know the length was obviously a bit of an adjustment i am i i don't have a good like natural facility with languages so that you know that was always a, a bit of an issue i did so they, I, when i was in israel a couple years i did the i did do the army for a year and a half at that time even i was uh like 24 i was drafted so i served a year and a half in the army um so i picked up some hebrew there though i do have some So I, I can tell Hebrew speakers, I have some funny stories about the army and me mispronouncing words or misunderstanding words in, in Hebrew while it's in the army. There <laughs> were some interesting uh, Would you share an <laughs> for our listeners? So, so I will, I will share it if, if, with, I'll, I'll have to do a little translation. So yeah, sure. I, I don't know if it, it won't come across for Hebrew speakers. This is a mm. funny, very funny story. Mm. I was doing basic training and the beginning of the basic training um, there is there are all these rules about how much distance you have to keep between you and the commanders both it's kind of a, a psychological distance and also like a physical distance like when you talk to when you talk to a commander you're supposed to be like two steps away or something like that um, and uh, so I was I was doing cleanup duty with one of the, the staff sergeant there's a there's a staff sergeant position within um, within a, um, a platoon and that's like supposed to be like the rough tough like mean guy he's but he's, he's the real meanie in the uh, you know among the commanders all the commanders were mean of course but he was like that was his job to really mean and so he was in charge like if you ever had to do like unpleasant cleanup duty or something like that he was in charge of it. so he was in charge of was doing some kind of unpleasant cleanup duty I can't remember what it was and I had to go up and tell him something So I walked up to him and I said, you know, commander, da, 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 whatever it was in my, in my broken Hebrew. And I was apparently standing a step too close to him, but I didn't realize that. 
and so there's a there's an expression like if you um, if if you like stand too close to a commander, one thing they don't they don't say to you, oh you're standing too close. They say they say to you, what do you want to read my dog tags? Like why are you standing so close? You're trying to read my dog tags. So I was standing too close. So he said to he said to me, what do you want to read dog tags? And he and I didn't get and I said. Okay, if you insist, I started reading for his dog tags. I thought he wanted me to read his dog tags. I swear why. <laughs> <laughs> so he, did you go and try and uh, read the dog tag then? <laughs> I so I tried to read. It's like, no, 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 just get back. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> And how, and this was which year? This was like 1983, 84? So this would have been 1985. Okay. So I, I, I left in the summer of 85. Mm. And did you have any, did you ever see any like military action or any skirmishes or anything during your military life? The idea? No, no, nothing, nothing. We um, actually, once we were uh, we went we were out on we got an alert that there might have, that there were some terrorists across the Lebanese border, and uh, we went out, and my, I was with my I was with my squad, and uh, we were and we were we were waiting there in the dark. It's completely pitch dark, right? And all of a sudden, you know, somebody we get the somebody says, "Oh, I see, I see some terrorists." In the in the in the in the ravine down there, so everyone's like you're all whispering, of course. And the, the commander, okay, open fire, and all, everyone opens fire except me because I didn't see anything. It was pitch black. I didn't see anything. <laughs> talking. And then afterwards, like one of the bigger commanders comes up, and he's like, he's like, you know, tell me exactly what happened. We're gonna go check the ravine. Exactly what happened. And they're like, oh, I saw a guy. He was wearing this kaffir. It was red, and he had blue eyes. And I was like, what are they talking about? I didn't see anything. So finally, we like go into the ravine to check it out, and there were three dead pigs there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of explains the red color. <laughs> I hope they were. They had a tint of red on them. <laughs> well, they, they did, but <laughs> <laughs> then the guys can be excused. They... <laughs> okay, and so you completed your military service. But when you came to Israel from the United States, so what was it like? You came and you, they just gave you a passport in the airport, and you just became an Israeli, or how did it work out? Basically, yeah, because in Israel there's a special law called the law of return. Any, any one is allowed, can come here and uh, get citizenship, uh, assuming they're not a criminal or something like that. Um, and the, the one Jewish grandparent rule actually comes from Nazi Germany, where anybody who had one Jewish grandparent was con who was Jewish to be, uh, to be uh, wrapped, uh, you know, to be put into a concentration camp and killed. So when the law came, we said, "People with one Jewish grandparent, we're going to let, we're going to give rep one with one Jewish grandparent." Mm -hmm. So I came. I got to the airport. I had my first uh, unpleasant brush 
Israeli bureaucracy when uh, I told them how to how to spell my name in Hebrew because I knew how to spell my name in Hebrew and they insisted that uh, I didn't, I didn't know how to spell my name in Hebrew. Your name. Pardon? Ah, uh, so okay, your name in Hebrew, uh, as in you knew the you, you didn't know the Hebrew alphabet, but you did not. I, yeah, yeah, I, I, knew, I knew enough Hebrew and also um, my family. There are not the close relatives, but I have relatives who are, you know, who contributed to. Well, there's an Israeli family here with my name, uh, so, and they're part of my family. So just a second. The same name as my family. Uh, uh, could you yeah. could you say the last line from the beginning? It's like the, I think there was a network issue or something. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I have. Uh, relatives here who are, you know, Israelis who have the last name that is it's the same last name. It's the same last name that I have in English. Mm -hmm. And so obviously my Hebrew last name is going to be the same as their Hebrew last name. Mm -hmm. So I wanted the same name as my relatives. Okay. And so the the bureaucrats decided I didn't know how to spell my name in Hebrew and they gave me a different name. Oh, <laughs> at the I airport. Didn't I, I, At the airport. Okay. They said to me, you're not going to tell us what your last name is. We're going to decide what your last name is. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I, so they gave me the wrong last name. And then three years later, when my brother came and moved here, they gave him the correct last name. So for a number of years, my brother and I had different last names. <laughs> okay. And did you finally get your last name like corrected? I finally did. I was uh, actually, when I was engaged, not to my wife, but to somebody else, she mm -hmm. insisted that I change my name, she said, that's not your name, you have to change it. So I went to the Ministry of Interior and I went through a process and had my last name changed. Oh, and once you had your name thing figured out, and but in between, when you came back to Israel, you, you joined the idea with the pre other name? The wrong name? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, the wrong name. I had, I had the wrong name for probably the first, probably 10 years I was in Israel. Okay, and what was that last name? It was, it was Shirgen. My, my, in English, my last name is Shirgen. Mm -hmm. In correct Hebrew, my last name is Horgen. Mm -hmm. And in the, and the incorrect name they gave me is Shirgen. So it wasn't uh -oh. like a totally bizarre name, but it was transliterating my my English last name and into into something and they didn't realize that I actually had it Hebrew they or they insisted I didn't have Hebrew last name. told them that I did and told them how it was spelled oh and once you came in you did your military service and what happened after that so I began uh, working. I wasn't. I had a lot of trouble finding myself kind of professionally. Mm -hmm. um, so I was working in kind of various little jobs that were kind of unsatisfactory. Then I began working at Hebrew University, um, mm -hmm. as at in the public relations department, which was fine, but a little bit boring. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I ended up actually leaving there and going into the world of high tech. And I oh. worked in, uh, for a company making CD-ROMs. This is in the day when we make CD-ROMs. Yeah, the circular ones, right? The shiny circular ones? Yes, <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, wow. And what they would do I is remember. the CD-ROMs. Pardon? 
No, no, I was just saying I remembered my childhood for once. Right, so this is before the internet. You didn't, you know, in order to have multimedia, like, no, like, maybe people had modems. Yeah, people did have modems back then. The internet, people had, had modems and you could get like little bits of information. You could read like a, a static web page, but nobody ever thought you'd be able to see movies over the internet or anything like that. So they, we did, we did multimedia CD-ROMs. We did these educational CD-ROMs. We did one on the history of Jerusalem. I actually did one on military history. We did one on the, on art, all kinds of really like funky things. And we'd make these discs. And there was something, and, and the computer manufacturers would often buy these discs and give them free to customers. So if you bought a Dell computer, then you would it would come with a, a history of, of the military history, or it would come with art history, or it would come with something else. Oh, um, wow. And the owner of the company was actually a very smart guy, and he understood what was going on in the, with the internet. And we actually moved from the CD-ROMs to becoming a, an electronic publisher. Mm. And, and it I was actually, like a website. Yeah. It was, it was a website. So we created a website um, that was supposed to mirror um, Epcot in Disney. Like it was kind of, you'd go and you'd, uh, places where you could go, and for instance, one of the places you could go was an encyclopedia. And I was in charge of the project of um, creating the encyclopedia and the multimedia elements of the encyclopedia. So I actually was the uh, first, I was in charge of the first uh, in, online encyclopedia. Well, it was like the first in the entire world, kind of, at least among the As world? far as I know, it's the first in the entire world. There was an online encyclopedia. Wow. And what was it called? It was called, it was called Infopedia. Infopedia. Wow. So you have like left your mark in history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of at the bleeding edge of technology and uh, the company ran out of money and uh, went under. <laughs> but it was also, we were making electronic books. We worked with the predecessor of the, the Kindle and the Nook, the ones that came before it, Sony had this ebook reader. Yeah. And there was something else. There was another one I can't remember. Softbook. There's something called Softbook. And they were the ones before the, before the Kindle and the Nook. And we were working with them. We were making electronic books, but it just was a little too early. And, uh, and the, the CEO had, had the total dream of, you know, of, of the kind of the concept of the Kindle and a lot of the concepts of, you know, research things that we have on the internet today. He really foresaw it, unfortunately was not able to take advantage of that. And which year was this? So this, so the company actually went under in the year 2000. Wow, so you were with them till 2000 and you're working in, on all these big, amazing projects. Yeah. Okay. And then it all like in a second, it all kind of just went. Um, and it was, it was a, it was a, there was a big economic downturn in general in technology in 2000. And we were a part of that and it was, it was difficult. So I ended up taking a job. My wife is a journal, journalist 
And uh, a friend of hers, like right after I lost my job, a friend of hers wrote her and said that they were looking for someone to manage their office, their, their uh, journalist office. And I was like, okay, I'm not working. I'll, I can do that. So I ended up working in journalism um, during the course of the second intifada, wow. which was which was kind of interesting. And this was like 2001, 2002? This, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Intifada started in 2002, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, no. The, the Intifada started in 2000. 2000, okay. And yeah. you entered the field of journalism when all this started? Right at the beginning? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, why didn't, so how was okay. it? As in, you went to, on your first day to work in the journalism, in the field of journalism, and how did it go on? Well, so my, I don't think it was my first day, but like my first week there, what was happening was the, um, the journalist who was working here, for, I was working, it was a company called Knight Ritter, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a group of newspapers in the United States, but the big one was the Miami Herald and, uh, and a bunch of other smaller papers. The correspondent here was leaving to go someplace else and they hadn't picked somebody to replace her. So they were going to do sort of this rotation of people coming in, replacing her. So she was leaving, and they hadn't sent the replacement yet. So I was kind of busy getting a, you know, apartment for the replacement, all that sort of stuff. And she, and then I get home one day, work. I walk in the door, and I, I was, I've been listening to the news on the radio, I think. And there had been an explosion, and I told my wife. My wife um, is a very serious journalist. I was kind of, you know, a journalist helper. She's like a very well-known journalist in the United States. And I said to her, I think there was an attack, and she turned on the radio, and that was the uh, Subaru bombing. And so she ran out to go cover the Subaru bombing. And then the journalist I worked for called me up and said, listen, I'm leaving. I have movers here who are taking my furniture. I cannot leave. Can you go cover this? And I was like alone. And we had uh, we had a, a baby. He was, I think, a year old. We had a year old baby. So I'm calling up all these people, seeing if anyone can you know, baby it or whatever. And nobody could. And she was like, I really need someone to go down there. So I took my baby, put him on a put him on my a baby carrier, and went down to cover the Sabaro bomb. So you took the baby with you? So I took the baby with me and started interviewing on the street. Whoa. And what <laughs> happened then? So, I mean, it was when you cover these bombings, like you don't actually go into the scene itself. Like, like, so there's not an issue of, wasn't like seeing bombing like that. People were, you know, so I was basically going out, I was interviewing people, interviewing the, the police spokesman, things like that, with the, with a group of journalists. It wasn't me one on one. You know, you're going, and you're getting quotes, and, you, and that sort of thing. And then I would, I wrote, I went back, and the journalist who was there, like I got her the quotes, um, so she could like quote people on the scene. But people were like looking at me with the baby. They're like, they're like, what are you doing here with the baby? Yeah. <laughs> and was this your like first child? This is, no, this is our third. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Does the baby remember anything? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. Okay. Oh. No, when he's crazy, I'll just stop blaming on that. But <laughs> that wow. was just, so, it was really just nuts. Yeah. And so uh, clear, yeah. yeah. Why don't we continue with the same topic in, and take a 15 minute break? Okay. Okay, then I'll get back to you in 15 minutes. And to all our listeners, this is it for the first episode. We will be back soon with episode two about Cliff's journey through the first Intifada.